0: This morning, if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 17. And as we now begin this remaining chapter, I I would be remiss to remind you that as pastor, I I could take as much time as I want in any passage of Scripture, and I could have turned this into a ten-part message. You need to be really thankful that that's not what God told me to do, because it would be depressing after the second one. But I also want to remind you that whatever God does in the way of correction in our lives, He does for a singular motivation, and that's love. Amen? Amen? So when we see, as we will see, we're going to get another one of those lists, and we're going to look at three more this morning, of these issues that we in life have as believers because to us they are the old ways of life there are BC days they're the before Christ us they are the old deadness that we used to walk in they're, they're the things that we ought to be very poor at today. some people will say, well you know I, I I'm you know I'm a saint I'm no longer a sinner that's just simply not biblically accurate. We're still sinners who happen to be more saintly today than we were yesterday. But that sainthood is, is a process. It's something that was initiated at salvation. It continues on in your life. And so, in effect, we ought to look more like Jesus when we die than when we got saved. Amen? Part of the problem with the church is I shared with you that, that famous quote from Mahatma Gandhi. He was asked what the problem with, with, uh, with Christianity was, and he said it was the church. It's true, because when you look at the church, a lot of times the world gets the wrong impression because the church isn't acting, talking, walking like Jesus. We've made up our own rules, we've made up our own designs and desires, and in fact, sometimes we're looking a whole lot like the walking dead. I know it's a weird study title, but go along with me, because when you look at what is going to happen in this next passage of Scripture. You're going to see, we're now alive in Christ. We're not dead. We used to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And now, as I reminded you last week, the first three chapters are all doctrinal. The third three chapters are duty-related. In other words, they're what we ought to do with what we know. Amen? And so we do have responsibility. With that knowledge comes responsibility. With understanding who we are in Christ and the grace that we've walked in, we we need to now translate that into action. The problem is, is the church in many ways cannot be distinguished from the world. And so people look at how we act and conduct ourselves and they go, well, why would I want to be a Christian because all I get is these rules and they do the same things that we do. And that is a shame to the church. And so this morning, don't be the walking dead. We need to be alive in Christ. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we pray, God, I pray that there would be truth in love this morning. But Lord, that there would not be a lie told in love. Lord, it's neither loving nor is it truthful for us to cause people to believe things that are not true about you. And, Lord, your standards are high. Lord, they are very concise. They speak to most of the areas of our lives. And, Lord, we want to take what you have said about how we ought to live and live it. And so, Lord, this morning, speak to us by the power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you're noticing a PowerPoint slide behind me. You're going to see those now at every service. So there'll be generally one that will have the outline and one that will have the practical application. So, kinda get ready. We're, you know, doing some things differently this morning. So, don't be the walking dead. Let's, let's read the first part of this chapter this morning, picking up, uh, we're gonna pick up in verse 17 down to 24 to begin with. And it says, uh, "This I say, therefore." So, whenever we see "therefore," we wonder what it's there for. There are eight "therefores" and wherefores in the remaining of the chapter, re- remaining part of this chapter. And, and as we move on into the rest of the book, you're going to find out that the focus here is applicational. What are we going to do with what we know? And so, let's be really careful here. Your Bible is a universal offender. Okay, it is going to afflict and offend and pick on your personal bad habits, bad character traits, your sinful behaviors universally. I'm going to give you several passages of Scripture this morning. If you take all of them, combine them, and pick out the individual singular things that are in them that your Bible says you ought not to be as a live person in Christ, but you would be if you were a dead person still in your trespasses and sins, there will be 64 of them. Throw in the Ten Commandments for good measure, and they're going to be repeated a couple of times, but you're going to have nearly 70 things that your Bible says that you should not be if you're a child of God. And everybody's going, well, I know what they are. You know, it's adulterer, murder, and those kind of things. Can I remind you, it also says contentious, prideful, arrogant, spiteful, mean-spirited, nasty disposition, vile, vulgar, Hateful, angry, you get the picture? So as a live person, we have been given tremendous instruction on what we ought to look like if we're alive. Now I want to remind you that three of those lists also say things like, and such were, past tense, some of you. Family of God, we ought to be miserable at sinning. We should not be practiced at sinning. We, we ought to be miserable failures when it comes to sinful behavior. Not very accomplished at those things. Because like it or not, our Bibles address how the Christian is to live. And how we're to walk. What we're to do. How we're to speak. How we're to live our lives in such a way that we look like... Christ, that we act like Christ, that our life is defined by who Jesus is and what he would do in that given situation, how he would conduct himself. And so when someone comes to you and they say, well, the Bible doesn't speak about that, they're normally not correct. There are very few things in a general sense that your Bible doesn't have an opinion on with the way you ought to live your life. We simply don't like what it says. And therefore, we flip the page and we go, I don't like that it says that. And so we think turning the page automatically exonerates us from having to understand what that meant to us. And I want to encourage you, the more you know, the more you are responsible for And so you're going to be responsible for a bunch of stuff by the time we finish this morning. The reason I'm not doing a ten-part message is because none of you would come back for part two. (laughs) This one is not going to be easy, okay? I'm going to equally take the opportunity to remind us of what Scripture says. And notice I use the word us because I'm in it. I'm not exempt. No person on this earth who's a child of grace is And so let's read these verses together completely. For this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. In other words, the old ways. The dead person whom you once were, having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God. Interesting thing that we think about aliens, amen? Aliens are from another world, aren't they? You're supposed to be aliens to the world of sin. And you're supposed to be a citizen of God's kingdom of heaven. It's real simple to understand what the word alienated means. We're supposed to not be alienated from God. We're supposed to be alienated from flesh. Period. That's as a believer. Because people who are in the flesh are alienated from the life of God. The opposite of that is someone who's a Christian. Amen? Someone who's in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, has the Spirit of God in you. So you should be very, very, very foreign in sin. You should not be comfortable in sin, period, for any reason. And if you are, you need to ask yourself some very basic questions. Number one, why? Number two, what's the result? He goes on because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. In other words, it's not an information problem. It's a blindness of heart. The information's there. You can't see it because you don't want to see it. People don't come to Christ, not because there isn't enough information to draw them, but simply because they don't want the inevitable conclusion, which is, I'm now one of God's kids. He's the Lord. Who being past feeling. In other words, they're so dead that they don't even feel it. So when someone comes to you, and they've got a problem, and they don't know the Lord, it should not shock you. Why? They're past feeling it. It's just their way of life. It's their manner of living. As I say to you often, sinners sin. It's what they do. And sinners who don't have Jesus really sin. It's what they know. It's how they act. It's the only way that they know. For they have given themselves over to lewdness, to the work of all uncleanness with greediness. Got it? The reason that people without Christ do those things is that's who they actually are. They don't have the grace of God in their life. They don't have the cleansing from sin. They don't have the renewal of mind. They're no longer walking as a live person. They're walking as a dead person. And so it says they walk, of course, in lewdness in uncleanness, with greediness. That's a generalization of flesh, by the way. I told you this was going to be a little hard. I'm going to try and lighten it up. Don't worry too much. Notice verse 20. Notice verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. Notice it doesn't say of Christ. It says you have not so learned Christ. Because you can learn of something and never be affected by it, amen? But to learn something is to become it. It becomes a part of you and you it. And I use the analogy for you to kind of dwell on as we move on today. I can teach you how to ride a mountain bike, amen? But that does not make you a mountain biker. We can go out in the parking lot, and I can teach you how to do little tight circles and, you know, how to bunny hop and all those kind of things. But where it really gets put to test, if I tell you to drive to Mammoth, I give you the 45 bucks for a bike pass, and I say, go to the top of Mammoth and try and get down. Now, all of a sudden, you better have learned mountain biking, not learned of mountain biking. Because if you didn't learn mountain biking, when you get to the top, you're going to die. You're going to pitch your bike off the top. You're going to get about halfway down. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. He should never have told me to come up here. And you're going to, you, and you just plunge right off. You see, here's why. You see, I can tell you that when you're going downhill, you don't want to ever use your front brake. But I like my front brake. It's on the left. I'm left-handed. I want to use my front brake. It's on the left. And I can see my front brake. It's in front of me. You see, I can only teach you about it until you use it. You have not learned it. Do you get the difference? As a Christian, you're in the process of learning Christ. Actually becoming like Jesus. And for the purpose of the analogy, you are becoming a mountain biker. You're actually going out on that narrow trail and you're learning to say, Wow, that's a cliff. Uh, that's a rock. You see, if you don't get those basic things and then do what you need to do, you're going to die. You're going to pitch headfirst off a cliff. Same is true for your walk with the Lord. You're getting some instruction, but where the rubber meets the road is when you get on the trail. You've not so learned Christ. It isn't the things that you've already assembled that you're now putting in order and now going to use. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, you see he's not going to steer you wrong. You're going to learn him, be like him, and you're going to be able to negotiate whatever is in front of you because he is in you. That you put off concerning your former conduct. Which kind of former? That's the former, right? That's the stuff you used to be. You're a has-been, washed-up sinner. You're supposed to be really bad at it, not accomplished and polished. You put off the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and renewed in the spirit of your mind. You see, you're not supposed to be putting time, effort, and energy into becoming a better sinner, but a better Christian. You're supposed to be different than the world. You're not supposed to be that dead old guy. You sure are not supposed to be the walking dead. Amen? And I know it's a weird title and some people, well, oh, you know, it's kind of the little zombie. Yeah, it is. You can look at it that way. But if you go back to the 50s and, you know, you go back to the guys who used to kind of crawl up on the, those Saturday afternoon movies out of the ground, they were actually dead, but they were still animated. That pretty much explains a Christian who walks in sin. You you don't want to be like that. Because let me tell you something. I don't know that you're actually saved. You might actually be dead and might be fooling yourself. You might be walking around looking and smelling and acting like you're actually dead, but you think you're alive. Because you can still walk. You can still talk. We don't want to be dead. We want to be alive. And so he says... You see, the old man grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. Yeah, dead things are dead, aren't they? Find a road-killed squirrel, take it to your front porch, leave it out there and see if it gets better. (laughs) Won't get better. It'll get more corrupt every day. Until it gets really corrupt and finally disappears, turns into dust. It's a beautiful picture of us without Jesus. Without Jesus, you're going to get more and more corrupt, you're going to rot, you're going to die, then you're going to disappear. But in Christ, he who the Son hath made free is free indeed. For I am alive in Christ. I, I'm now, I, I'm impervious to that death that ultimately would have taken my soul into eternity away from God. And be renewed, notice what it says, in the spirit of your mind. In other words, these things principally happen up here. We begin to think on them. Because most people don't sin without some knowledge that they're sinning. You choose to do those things that you do. Amen? Very few people just wake up and, you know, it's just like you kind of gravitate like a zombie over to a a keg of beer. Or, you you know, you just get in the car and your car drives you to some horrible place you shouldn't go. No, you have to cognizantly think about it. And you engage in those behaviors. We're not supposed to be pulled around by our mind of the old man, the old flesh, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you might put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And so that truth in love is where we start this morning. It's the new Christian paradigm for us. It is that admonition that we now have to listen to. Because what it actually says is, you're not supposed to be the walking dead. You should look substantially different than the world. You should act differently, talk differently, be completely different because your mind has been renewed by the Spirit of the Living God. And as I shared with you, that Mahatma Gandhi was spot on. What's the problem with Christianity? The church. Because people look at the church and go, well, they do the same things that we do. But they got all kinds of rules and regulations on them because they have to read the Bibles. A lot of people blame the reason that they don't like God or want God or want to come to God on the church. They say, why would I want to be a Christian? Because the Christians act exactly the same as people in the world. There's no difference. And you know what? In that regard, they're correct. It's a fault of the church. It's a fault of us. And I told you, universal offender today. Everybody will likely get some little prick today. Okay? It's going to happen. It's okay. You're going to live. You're going to make it. This is a necessary passage of Scripture. And maybe you're the one perfect person that got up this morning. There's absolutely nothing in your life that you need to reevaluate. But probably not. In fact, you even think that is an issue, okay? <laughs> James one twenty two says that we are to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only, deceiving ourselves, amen? So everything that we doctrinally understand should translate into action somewhere in our life. And that's where we are this morning. And so let's look at this admonition. That's why it says, therefore, there are some challenges to being a Christian, Amen? There's some things that fly right in the face of the court of public opinion and law, don't they? I, I can't tell you how many Christians walk in open rebellion to the plain teaching of the Word of God because there's a law that says they can. Can I remind you that when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he was writing to people who were underneath the power of the, of the one superpower that was in the world. And I guarantee you they could have said, well, Spartacus does it. Persephone did that. Caesar said we could do those things. Can I remind you that we don't care what Caesar thinks with that regard? And I'm not telling you to be disobedient to the government. I'm simply saying that if your government says it's okay for you to steal, it's still not okay for you to steal. If your government says it's okay for you to kill innocent life, it's still not okay for you to kill innocent life. If your government says that it's perfectly okay for you to be a fornicator, it's still not okay for you to be a fornicator. If your government says, which it does, that it's okay for you to look at nasty, filthy things on the Internet, it's still not okay for you to look at nasty, filthy things on the Internet. You get my meaning. It's important you get my meaning here. Because Christians use the excuse that it's legal. They say, well, everybody does it. And it's wrong. It is not to be among us, period. We are to be ye therefore separate, says the Lord. There should be a marked difference in our behavior than the world's behavior. And I'm going to give you some stuff this morning that once you look at it, you're going to go, wow. Some of you already know it. Some of you don't. But I'm going to encourage you, if you know your Bible, it pretty much affects every area of your life. And we're going to get shot up a little this morning, all of us. It's okay. Sometimes it's good for us. Now, in saying that, His grace is sufficient for all of my failures and weaknesses. Okay? Okay? And his love is abounding towards us every moment of every day of all of the time that has ever been, is now, or will ever be. So make no mistake, his grace is sufficient. So I'm not trying to put you under bondage. I'm trying to put you on notice that we as the church ought to be standing for what your Bible stands for, not what the world permits. Because the world permits a lot of things that we should have nothing to do with. That's why it says, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You're alive. You're not dead. Act like it. Live it. Amen? That's what's really being said. You aren't like the world anymore. You have a renewed heart. You have a renewed mind. You should have a renewed life. It should translate into action. There should be a difference. If there's no difference, you must ask yourself, why? What's going on with me? Because if you're comfortable in your sin, you're in disobedience at the very best. You might be open in open rebellion. You, you may be doing the very things that God tells you not to do. That's never a good thing, because there's only two things that can happen. One, you're going to get a whooping like you've never had before. Number two, you're not saved at all, and you're going to perish. I'm thinking neither one of those things is really all that great. Boy, I hope God only spanks me, and I hope I'm okay. You know, I've actually had people tell me that. Well, you know, I'm just, I am just—I think I'm okay with God. Man, you better know you're okay with God. If you're walking around this morning, and you're one of those people that thinks you're okay with God, and you don't know you're okay with God, I would say there's some things in your life that need to change. Because you should know. And the way you know, the way your ins- your assurance grows is by, as best you can, living this out. Because in open rebellion, you have zero assurance. You're walking around going, well, I don't really even know if I'm saved because I keep doing this thing and, and I know I'm not supposed to do it and I have no victory over it. And so your mind goes places where God doesn't want it to go, but it has to go because He's convicting you of your sin. You see... We're not dead anymore. We sure shouldn't be acting like it. Romans chapter 1, if you'd turn there, please. Romans chapter 1. I want to pick up this morning in verse 18. And I'm going to remind you, I'm not going to attempt, for sake of time, to read every single one of these verses that we're going to point to today. That's part of your job as Bereans, is to take these things home and see if they are so. Amen? That's why you're given a note paper in your Bulletin every single week. If you don't bring one with you, you'll always have one. You can jot things down. Go check them out for yourself. In other words, alive people think and act according to Scripture. So if Scripture plainly says that someone is an unbeliever, if they do A, then what is a person who does A consistently without remorse, without regret, without repentance? I say to you, there's only two options. They're either unsaved, or they're about to get a whipping by God. One of the two. That's why I made that case. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now let me explain something to you. There's only one group of people upon whom your Bible says that the wrath of God will ever fall, and that is people who are not saved. I point you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there verses 9 through 11. It says that the wrath of God will not fall on the righteous, for we have not been called unto wrath, but unto salvation. So the wrath of God is going to come on people who are not saved. And then to make sure we get this principle, it says two things. All ungodliness. You can't possibly be all ungodliness if Christ is in you. Amen? So it also says, and unrighteousness of men. So all of the things that Scripture says are the defining characteristics and points of unrighteousness. If you're in that group, the wrath of God is coming upon you. In other words, it's what you're saved from. Now, the rest of this chapter is the bad news about what it means to be an unbeliever. And I'm only going to highlight a few things. But I'm doing so for a very specific purpose. Because if you go through and now look at the words they, their, them, themselves, and who... They are all the marks of people who don't know Jesus. So this list, combined with two more, which you can jot down in the margin of your Bible, and or on that note sheet, those things which we would look at and say, well, somebody who habitually does those things either doesn't know the Lord at all, or they're in rebellion and they're about to get a real bad spanking. Neither one of those two things do we want to be. So, whether it's A or B, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm simply saying your Bible plainly declares. It says very clearly that you cannot walk in these things and name the name of Jesus. So much so that when you get to 1 Corinthians and you get to the book of Galatians, it says, do you not know... That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a plain statement, family of God. It doesn't have to be uh, spiritualized. It means they're the marks of someone who doesn't know Jesus. And so in this, you'll notice here down to verse 25, where it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. And so these things, as they set the stage, that he's describing unbelievers to a T. He says these people don't know Jesus. Doesn't matter whether they're doing those things because it's legal, because their friends said so, because they grew up in a bad neighborhood, because they supposedly are genetically defective, because they have the disease of stupidity. There's no qualifier. It simply says people who act like this, do these things, are part of the dead. They they, they live in the world of the dead. And it's not simply their eyes are blinded so they cannot see, but their minds are darkened so that everything they perceive, they perceive through darkness. And that's exactly how we used to be before we came to Jesus, isn't it? We walked around, it seemed normal to us, didn't it? You're in sin, this is what I know how to do. The light goes on, you're going, man, bugs. That's a rat jeez, there's mold. You see, it becomes very clear when the light goes on. But if you're in deadness, there's no light. So Christians are not supposed to act like unbelievers. Why? Because sin is deadness. It says, I'm dead. It says, I'm not alive. It says, I don't have life in me. It says, I don't know Jesus. To willingly sin is to admit and declare with your life that you don't know Jesus. So when your supposed Christian friend comes to you and says, you know what? I'm perfectly okay in my drunkenness because I have the disease of alcoholism. And the American Medical Association says, I have a disease, I have a sickness. As a Christian, you're in sin. It's not okay with God because the AMA says it is. When your friend comes to you who is now living with his girlfriend or she with her boyfriend, and they say, We're in a committed relationship, and so our fornication is blessed by God, we have blessed fornication. We're blessed fornicators. You can say, no, that's not okay with God. It doesn't matter how committed you are. Ask a simple question, are you married? No. Then you're in sin. You're in open rebellion to God. You see, Scripture says those are marks of deadness. This family of God is why we're still fighting this fight against gay marriage. Because I don't want to add another law to the long list of things that our government says is okay so that more people perish believing that they're all right because the government says it's okay. It's not okay. Pick up with me verse 26, Romans 1. And for this reason God gave them. Who are the them? That would be unbelievers up to vile passions. That means disgusting sensuality if it isn't clear enough as vile passion. Disgusting sensuality. That's what it actually says. For even their unbelievers, again, women, exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Real simple. You don't need a translator. This is sexual perversion. Period. End of conversation. And likewise, just in case it wasn't clear already, the unbelieving men, leaving the natural use of the woman, now it becomes very clear, amen, This is human sexuality 101, burned in their unbelieving lust, one for another, and men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. That is an open description of homosexual behavior of any kind. So when someone comes and says, well, I think it's just more loving if we just pass the law so that everyone will feel good about their relationship, you are saying to that person that it is now okay with God. Forget that it's okay with any nation. It's not okay with God. And that's what we care about. We can have laws all day long and we do. Pornography is legal. It's not okay with God. Drunkenness is legal. It's not okay with God. Fornication is legal. It's not okay with God. I told you I'm picking on everyone and everything. Now let me go a little further. Bitterness is okay. It's illegal, but it's not okay with God. Hatred is legal, but it's not okay with God. Do you understand? As Christians, we're to walk as He has taught us. That means we don't get to pick and choose. That means we cannot make laws that fly in the face of the plain teaching of God's Word. It's plain. So it's not an issue of hate. It's an issue of the truth in love. Because I love you, I can't perform your homosexual wedding. Because I am concerned for your eternity much more than your supposed civil rights, I have no choice but to say no. And if I have to go to jail, I will go to jail. But let me be clear. If you come to me and you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you are going to not live together for the period of time we're doing premarital counseling. You're not going to be sexually intimate. Or I'm not doing your wedding either. Because it's sin. I have to stand where God stands. And if you come to me, well, you know, I just feel like I have to have a couple of drinks every night to kind of loosen up. You're getting drunk. It's a sin. God's not okay with it. If you have to alter your personality to get through life, it's not okay with God. It's called sorcery in Scripture. Drug abuse is not okay with God. Even if those drugs are legal. Ouch. Ouch. You've got to be careful. We believe what God's Word says. We do not believe necessarily that just because man made it legal that it's OK. And that's why this passage as it goes on and we'll not look at any of the rest of it, says untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. You get the picture? We've been told how we're supposed to act. God has spoken very clearly. How can we as Christians walk in that deadness any longer? That's why the admonition is so strong. Don't walk as dead people anymore. You're not dead. If Christians stand for what's right, we stand for Christ. But if we stand for what's wrong, we stand with the enemy. We're actually enabling the enemy. When the church caves in on all these moral issues that are clear in here, we are standing with the enemy. And we need to stop. Because there are people who are perishing eternally because of what has been presented to them. When the church no longer stands on the truth of the word of God, then we stand on nothing. We might as well make up our own rules. Now he gives a powerful argument beginning in verse 24. And and I want you to just look at this. Because the world's tolerance for evil is spiritually fatal, family of God. The world's tolerance for evil is spiritually fatal. There are people all over the world who believe because some pastor said they're okay. They are in spiritual jeopardy because of that pastor's words. And I believe that that blood will be required of him or her. You, you, you see, we stand where Christ stands. We don't stand in deadness. So where do we get this instruction? Verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him. By the way, that is a rhetorical question demanding a negative answer. You have heard him. And so here's what you heard. It comes from here doesn't come from what the world tells you. Well, I think you should leave your husband. After all, he's not a good provider. I can tell you that's not in here. It's not in here. There's no such thing as emotional abuse that gives you the right to divorce your spouse. It's not in here. Now, am I telling you that you need to go take a bunch of abuse? Absolutely not. But you need to fix the problem, not run to the divorce court, because... You've had emotional views. And I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm telling you, that's how flippant people get, because there's laws. The law says I can do it. Your Bible says differently. As a Christian, you get it from here. Not because the guy at the courthouse said you could file the papers. Told you I was going to universally afflict, because this universally afflicts. You didn't learn it from Christ. Indeed, you've heard of him you've been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now back to my mountain biking analogy. You get what I'm saying now? Should make some sense to you. You see, if I truly instruct you and you go out on the trail, then those principles ought to take place out there on the trail. Amen. Your fellow, oh, he said, don't grab the front brake. Not because it's easier to grab the front bl- brake. Not because you're left-handed. It's because you're going to get killed. So if God tells you not to do something, what do you think the chances are that you're the one human being in all of human history about which this is not going to be true? Um, That would be zero. It's going to apply to you just as much as it applies to me. And we need to see our Bibles that way, family of God. We need to rest and trust that this is truth. And just because you don't like what it says, or I don't like what it says, because there's some stuff in here I don't like, okay? I've shared that with you. Just because you don't like what it says doesn't mean that you're not responsible for the information or that there's another option available to you and to you alone. You see, people who are dead don't care about learning Christ. They don't care about the Word. They're not even concerned. You see, the emphasis is on what you put up in here, which should come from there, your Bible. And so it goes on to say that you put off concerning your former conduct. In other words, it's the way you used to walk. In other words, you're a has-been. You're washed up as a sinner. And the old man, that would be your unbelieving self, which grows corrupt according to his deceitful lusts, renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. So there is a huge difference in how you act, how you think, and what you look like. The world should be able to tell that you're a Christian, that I'm a Christian. There should be a marked difference in our behavior. (laughs) I look back on the life of Lazarus as Jesus came to Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. He was different. You remember what they said about him? Oh, don't go in there. He stinks. He came out. He didn't stink anymore. He was alive. It's a picture of us. We used to stink. We're now alive. We shouldn't stink anymore. We should be lousy at stinking. Okay? We should not be able to stink and not know it. It's like, wow, that's dead. You guys all know this. We live here in the mountains. You go away from your house and you get one of those mice. They're this big. And they climb in a crack in the wall somewhere and they die. You know that smell. You know what I'm saying. It's like a little tiny mouse. It makes your whole house smell terrible. That's what a little sin does. Your whole house isn't filthy. It's not even dirty. Matter of fact, it's not even in the same place. It's in between the walls. But your whole place stinks. Because there's deadness. We want to have the fragrance of Christ. Not the smell of death. And now, if we could, that next slide, the application of all of this, because that's where this goes. Now, see, it calls to question some of these things that you and I look at and we go, oh, well, you know, at least I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a murderer, you know, I'm not any of those things. And I love the fact that this goes to some places that we can look at and go, oh, man, ow, that kind of gets on the edge of my nerves. I don't really like what that says. And again, a reminder for you, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, describes very clearly an awful lot of things that you probably don't want to hear about this morning, okay? Revilers. Somebody who just has a nasty disposition all the time. That's in there. Contentious. You can't get along with anybody because you're so pridefully arrogant that you're always right and everybody else is wrong. That's in there. I want to just make everyone feel universally horrible. Okay? So, if I've missed one, you need a specific shout-out sin, let me know. I'll let you have it. No, I'm just telling you things so that you look at it in the proper perspective, okay? The bitter person is just as bad off, as far as Scripture is concerned, as the adulterer. Did you hear what I just said? If you are not a redeemed, bitter person, and a changed, bitter person, then you're either walking in rebellion and about to get a spanking, or maybe you're not saved at all. Did you hear what I just said? Because a lot of people don't get that connection. The person who is angry all the time is just as lost as the fornicator. Do you get what I just said? If you are an unredeemed angry person, you're just as lost as an unredeemed fornicator. As far as scripture is concerned. Now are there penalties that are different for the actions we undertake in life? Yes. Consequences and circumstances being what they are, you're going to suffer some major consequences that are above and beyond the things you might get for being contentious. If you happen to be an adulterer or an adulteress. But make no mistake. Bitterness is just as dead as adultery. Ow. Told you. So, some awesome application. Therefore, it begins, and I want you to notice a little uniqueness to this. You'll notice there in my notes behind me that it says a certain name of a certain being who is in the universe, who's not really a nice guy, that's kind of responsible for every last one of these things. So if we're acting like Satan, who do you think is uh, kind of in charge at that moment? Mm-hmm. It's the old dead self. It's the unredeemed self. might not be that you even have a relationship with the Lord. And I'm not trying to cause you to necessarily question your salvation for that reason, but rather to say test and see that if you are of the faith, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, to look at your life in such a way that you look very carefully before you point a finger at somebody else. You might want to look at your own anger, your own bitterness, Your own contentiousness, your own envy, your own jealousy. You see, all of those things are the mark of somebody who's not walking with Jesus. Therefore, put away lying and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one with another. Now, why would he begin? You look at this. Why lying? Because Satan is the father of all lies. Amen. Amen. He's the one that lies. Matter of fact, Jesus went on to say, there in John 8, 44, He said He speaks of His own resources when He lies, because He is literally the originator of lying. Do you remember what He said in the garden? Oh, God didn't say that. No, I, I mean, sheesh, come on. I mean, if you eat of that tree, of course you're going to become like God, so, you know, just go ahead and eat. He's a liar. So as far as Scripture's concerned... If you've got a problem telling the truth, you got an issue with God. It needs to change. It's a mark of the old dead self. 1 John chapter 2 says that no lie is of the truth. That's a plain in-your-face statement. Gee, that's hard to figure out. It's a lie. It's not truth. You, you see, we belong to each other. And because we belong to each other, our basis for belonging is the truth, isn't it? You better hope there's only one truth. Because if there's a competing truth, by necessity there cannot be two truths when they are the different things but the same object. In other words, if I tell you that blue is purple and purple is blue, only one of those two things can be true. So if you're saved by grace through faith, and that same saving faith, you understand from the Bible that says you can't be a liar and be okay with God, then guess what you can't be? You can't be a liar and be okay with God. That's the old dead self that's talking. Anger is an emotional arousal that's caused by something that simply displeases us. And note here that all anger is not sin. There is a righteous anger. But let me be very careful and very blunt. Very few human beings can have righteous indignation. Why? Because we don't have perfect emotions and we don't have perfect information. So the devil, on the other hand, he speaks with lies all the time. Christians should be people of the truth. The second thing here, and I want you to notice that anger is this this huge issue that that rises up. Not only are we not to be liars, we're not to be uh, people who have immense amount of anger because they they turn to murder, don't they? You remember Cain and Abel? They just started with anger. Well, like the fact that he's first, I, you know, he's, like his offering was accepted, and mine wasn't. The first murder occurs. You, you see, these things are all attached with the enemy. They're the things that God says he's going to pour his wrath out on. I'm pretty sure I don't want to be in that club. Stealing. What? What? Where? Where do we get that truth? You, you see, and I want to be really clear here. When Scripture talks about stealing... It talks about all kinds of stealing. That would include using government resources when you don't need them. That would include repeatedly filing bankruptcy and taking the money that rightly belongs to someone else. That would include walking away from your mortgage payment simply because you lost your job and doing nothing about it. That's stealing. Those monies belong to somebody else. But because it's legal to do those things... People want it. Well, I'm not stealing. I hate to differ with you. But yes, it's stealing. Just because there are bankruptcy laws that say it's legal for you doesn't mean that it's okay with God. And furthermore, let me be really clear. God's position on the matter is this. That we're not to be a debtor to anyone. And so if you have a debt, you need to take care of the debt. And so if you are one of those people that thinks it's okay to just go and indiscriminately do whatever you want to do because the law allows it, your Bible doesn't say that. That is stealing. Just because that was a nasty bank agent, just because that was a mortgage banker who sold you a bad loan, it still belongs to somebody else. We need to be really careful what we say. And frankly, I'm sick to death of these Christian credit counselors who tell people basically to go steal. Now, if you engage in that behavior, what you ought to do is this. You settle those debts. And once you settle those debts, you need to make sure that you pay back every single penny of what was owed. The bankruptcy court was designed to keep you from being crushed or worse yet at that time thrown into debtor's prison which we don't do anymore it was never designed to take something that rightfully belonged to someone else and take it from them in God's eyes that's still wrong why am I saying that because there are a lot of Christians that think it's okay they they would say to go rob a bank is wrong but to steal from a mortgage banker is okay it's not okay we get our leading from God Somebody asked me at first service, well, it seems a little harsh. Let me make it real for you. My wife, me, your pastor, went through a corporate bankruptcy before we came back to the Lord. Right at that time, we had a large corporation that went into bankruptcy, into receivership. My wife, your pastor, we, paid for 8 Years on that debt until every penny was paid. 100%. Why am I telling you that? Because it's the right thing to do. Those people who gave that credit gave it believing they were going to get paid. And just because you don't like the outcome, which is, well, I don't have as much money as I would have had before, doesn't mean that it isn't theirs. So be careful how you define these things. This is where the church gets in trouble. Well, it's not alcoholism if if I don't really get completely blasted. I'm not drunk. Scripture actually says if it alters your mind in any shape or fashion, you're drunk. The word drunkenness means to be of a changed mind. Affects you in any way at all. You, you see, stealing is the mark of a dead person. Lying is a mark of a dead person. You know how many people I've talked to that, well, you know, I don't really want to tell them that I'm actually out of work right now on that loan application. And guess what happens? Their finances end up a mess. Family of God, the standards we hold are not the world's standards. They're God's standards. Make sure that you're being well-pleasing to God, not just simply well-pleasing to some law that exists on the books in the state of California, because they're just about anything that you can imagine on the laws in the books of the state of California. It's nuts how many things are perfectly okay in this state that are not okay with God. Corrupt speech, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is necessary for edification. In other words, it should build people up. And that means we shouldn't talk like the world, like dead people. That means that what comes out of our mouth, remember what it says. Dead people use those things. Satan was the world's first cursor as well. He cursed God. He said, I'm not going to do what you said. That it may impart grace to the hearers. You see, our lives are supposed to be imparters of grace. And here's the glorious thing. When I say what I just said to you, which is we believe it, we live it, I do it, and then I use that as an example to you, you can look at my life at what God can do with grace because it didn't seem like it was a wise financial decision at the time. But it was a very wise financial decision because that's what this book says. And it has worked out wonderfully for the guilts. Better than you can possibly imagine. So same thing with corrupt speech. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God from whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. You see, as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're a live person, how should you speak? As an alive person. We don't want to use what's worthless and rotten and bad to describe Jesus. Amen? That's why sometimes I'm amazed. I sit and I listen to people's conversation and I go, man, that shouldn't, that shouldn't come out. You know, there's a certain laxity that the world has now about virtually everything. If you watch TV much, you'll understand that. It'd be almost impossible to edit modern TV. It's like, what do you leave in? Not what do you take out? It's like, oh, I'll take out that half hour. We don't want to have those things seem to be okay. Really? Is that what we want people to know about Jesus? Corrupt? And then finally, the last thing, and we'll wrap it up. This is why I didn't do a ten-part message. And as you can see, it would have been pretty easy just with verse 31 to get a couple of messages out of here. How about bitterness? The world's first bitter person was Satan himself. He thought he should be like the Most High God. Amen? Amen? That was his thought process. He said, I will become like the Most High God. And he begins to act exactly like a bitter person does. Lies, accusations, slander, hateful actions. That's what bitterness does. And ultimately, no forgiveness. So, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away with you from all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You see, live people are not bitter people. Live people tell the truth. Live people's speech speaks of Jesus. Live people don't walk around in anger and bitterness, unforgiveness life people walk around the way we really are which is redeemed of the lord amen and if we're walking around that way then the world sees the right jesus in us sometimes i i've, I've had times of prayer just in my own life where i've sat down and i've just I, i've just repented before the lord of the things that god's been blamed for because of my actions The things that I've said, the things that I've done, the things that other people could have looked at my life and said, well, he did he's a Christian. Don't be the walking dead. Be alive in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is grace that's sufficient for all of our failures and weaknesses and faux pas. And God is this passage of scripture is tough Lord it's a hard one it afflicts, it bites Lord it brings into question some of our motivations and actions God help us to walk as your children Lord fully alive by the spirit in Christ help us to live for you day by day Lord may the words as David said and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you Lord, would we look at the things that we do and say, how we act in this world, not according to what the laws say is permissible, but what your word says is right. God, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that you don't cast us out, Lord. That even when we do fail, that there's grace that's sufficient for our failures. Lord, thank you for 1 John 1.9 that says if we confess, That you're faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. And so, Lord, we know that you just simply don't want us to walk in that deadness anymore, but you want us to walk in life. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to stand for what you stand for in all ways and in everything in every day. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?